0: Welcome, everybody, to today's edition of the Immigration Hour. Here from Cook Baxter Immigration, I'm your host, Charles Cook. It's great to be with you today. There is, as always during the Trump administration, (laughs) lots of immigration news going on at this very moment. Uh, And we, of course, have to start with the president's tweet last night on um, this idea that uh, President Trump is going to and ICE are going to begin... Some sort of um, enforcement action. This is, you know, besides the crazy stuff about the thousands of people lining up uh, for uh, uh, um, um, the the rally that'll be happening at the same time as the American Immigration Lawyers Conference kicks off in the same city in Orlando. Uh, So we've got a we've got the tweet from the president, uh, which basically says this: "Hey." everybody who's undocumented, ICE is about to begin a massive new roundup operation where they're going to deport millions of undocumented immigrants in the United States. Um, now, this, this is really interesting um, from the president uh, because well one of the things that we know uh, from, uh, from the real Donald Trump uh, is that he tends to lie about things. Now, there is no doubt that uh, this tweet uh, from yesterday where he says this quote next week this is about 12 hours ago This is 10 o'clock last night when all good other good human beings are sleeping next week ice will begin the process of removing the millions of illegal aliens who have illicitly found their way into the united states they will be removed as fast as they come in mexico using their strong immigration laws is doing a very good job of stopping people, next quote, long before they get to our southern border. Guatemala is getting ready to sign a safe third country agreement, which really um, obviates what a safe third country really means. The only ones who don't do anything are the Democrats in Congress We must vote to get rid of the loopholes. Uh, loopholes, by the way, you, you, you might know those as the law, um, and fix asylum, meaning make it impossible to get. If so, border crisis will end quickly. So that, that, those two tweets are kind of a mishmash of two separate ideas. One, to slow down or stop the number of people seeking asylum in the United States on our southern border. And two, the, the ten and a, now 10.5 million people in the United States that are undocumented um, deporting them. Now, what what we in the field take this to mean uh, is that ICE will uh, resume aggressively something that it did last year and the year before, and that is look for people who have orders of deportation and go to their homes, detain them, and then ultimately deport them from the United States, because these are the people that ICE has the ability to actually physically deport. When ICE arrests people that do not have deportation orders, then they have to put them in custody for two to six to eight months, depending on what they're asking for. Uh, Virtually all of them have relief from removal, Uh, and it's a a much more expensive uh, process than ICE simply picking somebody up, holding them for a few days, and then deporting them. Uh, ICE uh, is easily able to do this because a large chunk of these people actually report to ICE every single day. I had a quick call last week from a reporter for the Associated Press who was asking me why there were big, long lines to get into the immigration court building when she drove by that that morning. And I said, those people aren't, most of them aren't going to immigration court. Those are people that are reporting to ICE uh, in accordance with either orders of supervision or orders of release, uh, which gives lie to the, the claim that people don't show up for their hearings because they're, they're literally waiting outside of the building for hours to get in to tell ICE where they live and that they're still around and they're still either waiting to be removed or waiting for a hearing coming up. Uh, but we, uh, we saw this play out dramatically yesterday. Uh, we have been representing for about six months a Vietnamese national uh, who came to the United States as a refugee back in the late 80s. And after getting here as a young boy, he got in a little bit of trouble, not not bad trouble. His crime wasn't terrible, um, but it it was a crime that rendered him removable as a permanent resident. And uh, he ultimately ended up getting an order of removal back in the 90s. Now, we have an agreement uh, with Vietnam that's still in place that says they will accept deportees who arrived in the U.S. after 1995, I believe, is the date, sometime in 1995. And there's reason for those cutoff dates. Um, And so they will not accept anybody uh, that is being deported by ICE who came before that date. And our guy came long before that date. And we have managed to keep him out of custody. We pulled him out of custody once. We managed to keep him out of custody for the last six months. Um, And yesterday, he'd been reporting like every month, every other month to ICE. And he reported yesterday. And because he presumed that things were going smoothly... Uh, he didn't know, let us know that he was going in. He said, I don't, I don't need my lawyers today. And sure enough, I get a phone call from him um, right after he gets there uh, that said, hey, they're arresting me. And they told me they're deporting me tomorrow. And I said, they can't deport you tomorrow. You, you literally legally cannot be deported. Plus, there is a federal court order in place telling ICE not to deport folks like him. Um, and so we got a hold of the ICE officer. I said, well, no, we're deporting him tomorrow. He's going to be in the plane at noon and we confront him and said, you're not illegally allowed to deport him. And the ICE officer then admitted, well, we know we can't deport him, but we can bring him to the gate. And if he gets on the plane, they'll take him. And so we said, so he does not to get on the plane. You can't deport him. And they admitted, no, they, they can't force him to get on the airplane. Um, so obviously our client's not getting on that airplane. But nonetheless, ICE put him in a jail last night uh, for his, his supposed last night in the United States stripped him of all his worldly goods except for his cash, which they kept in a bag. Uh, and then because they've had his passport for a very long time, uh, they're going to bring him to the airport today. And they're going to put him on an airplane, or they'll try to, and he's not going to get on because he's, he can't be deported and he is terrified of going back to Vietnam. Plus, I think his wife and three U.S. citizen kids would probably mind that problem. So now you have ICE intentionally violating, intentionally violating a federal court order, uh, nationwide injunction that applies for Vietnamese refugees that came before 1995, and doing this in contradiction to the actual agreement in place between ICE, I mean, between the U.S. government and Vietnam, uh, with the trick uh, there. With, I, I guess you would call it a loophole, maybe. I thought they didn't like loopholes. Somebody should talk to President Trump about that. Um, The loophole being, well, if he gets on the plane himself, he's not being deported. Oh, my goodness. Look at this really cool loophole. I wonder how many times they've done this in the past to people who didn't have lawyers. That's what's really disturbing here is they are clearly doing this. This is not the first time, just the first time that we find out about it. So we'll report more. Uh, next week about uh, what has happened to our client and maybe even uh, do a quick quick talk with him about uh, what happened to him and what ICE said and did here. But this is really remarkable. We'll, we're actually going to have one of our lawyers at the airport uh, to look for him. Since ICE won't tell us what to, where he's leaving from in Atlanta uh, or where he's going or what flight he's on, just that he was leaving around noon, uh, we're going to have to check all the flights going out of the United States because Surely ICE isn't crazy enough to put him on a flight to L.A. and then have him catch an L.A. flight to Ho Chi Minh City. Uh, they got to fly him outside the United States. But he doesn't have a visa to go anywhere else. And there are no direct flights from Atlanta to Ho Chi Minh City. uh, So it'll be curious to see what's going to go on. But this is an example of, you know, the Trump effect. And Trump saying ICE will begin the process of removing millions of illegal aliens. You know, he lies all the time. Uh, but what he will do, and what ICE will do, is they will wreak havoc in immigrant communities throughout every major metro Atlanta and non-metro Atlanta in the United States. Uh, they will arrest um, what what we would call the low-hanging fruit. Uh, I think they call them incidental arrests of uh, people in the houses that they that they are allowed into uh, by people to uh, and arrest the people that don't have papers. Uh, this morning on Facebook Live, we did a quick Spanish Facebook Live that alerted people to their legal rights uh, when ICE knocks on their door, uh, the legal right to ask for a judicial warrant. They don't have them. They don't, they, they're do not they too lazy to get them, so they don't have any judicial warrant. Um, and if they have a judicial warrant, the marshals will be at their door, not, not, not ICE. And marshals, you have to let in if they have a judicial warrant. ICE, you don't have to let in. And that applies to your car. If you're in your car, You do not have to put the window down. You do not have to open your door. You don't have to get out. You just simply say through the window, show me the warrant. Show me the warrant from a judge and I will get out. But otherwise, I'm not getting out. You also do not have to tell ICE your name. You don't have to tell them your nationality. You don't have to tell them where you were born. You don't have to give your fingerprints. That's not how this process works. ICE can get a judicial warrant anytime they want to. And then you'd have to do all those things. This is not a loophole. This is the law. And so we're going to be asking people uh, to make sure uh, that they understand and implement their judicial, their actual rights um, when they are faced with this possibility of being detained uh, by ICE because they have a maybe a potential removal order. There's a great a great website, something like Elmer Fudd. There, there for a second. Uh, there's a great website called WeHaveRights.us um, that uh, teaches people exactly what their rights are uh, in um, the uh, in the process of encounters with ICE. Uh, so when ICE is outside the door, uh, you can talk to the door and tell them, "We're not letting you in. I'm sorry. Thank you very much." And just ignore them. They'll pound on the windows. They'll pound on the doors. They'll make threats, but they cannot break the nerve. But if you let them in your house, they're going to wander everywhere and ask everybody. If you're in a car that gets stopped and you're a passenger and the driver stops the car and ICE asks you for your name and ID, you do not have to answer. You have a right to remain silent. You also can ask the officer, am I under arrest? And he has to answer you. If he says no, then you just sit there. And you can ignore the threats. You can ignore the warnings. You don't have to get out of the car. You have no legal obligation to comply if you're not under arrest. Now, if a police officer asks you your name, an actual police officer, then by, by what Supreme Court has said, you've got to tell them what your name is. But you don't have to present any papers. There's no requirement that you present any papers. And you certainly would never admit that you have no papers in the United States. You would just never admit what your immigration status is. You never admit where you were born. Just shut up and tell the officer I am exercising my right to remain silent. Thank you. And it will be uncomfortable and it will be difficult, but you just sit there and people have had ICE just walk away. Now, recently we had an incident here in Atlanta, uh, a couple that was referred to us by the Mexican consulate, uh, where a father and son were in a car. ICE surrounded the car. Uh, the son began gr- uh, recording a video of the encounter. Um, and uh, at the end of the encounter, when the son exercised all his rights, ICE left, but not before one of the officers flipped off with the finger, the finger on video to this young man. Uh, that was on a Friday. On Monday, uh, they uh, they had actually slept somewhere else on Sunday night so that if ICE came around again, they wouldn't be there, but they felt calm and then ICE didn't show up. So they went home Monday night, and on Tuesday morning, when Dad got in his vehicle and went to pick up his son on the other side of the apartment complex, ICE surrounded the vehicle again while they were inside. And when the son again refused to get out, ICE called the police, the local Chambly police. And the Chambly police came over and asked uh, the dad, who was in the driver's seat, for his driver's license. And, the, and the Dad, instead of remaining silent... Because he was in a car. if you're in a car, they can ask for a driver's license. He said, "I don't have one." The officer asked him to step out and said he was going to detain him. Now the son just stayed in the car, so I'm not getting out of the car. Dad got out and clo- ultimately got out of the car and closed the door. Um, and, but the police then left. They did not arrest the guy. Now, we're going to be finding out what the Chambly Police's involvement in this was, but if they were acting act on the behalf of ICE, it was wildly inappropriate, uh, especially not to arrest the dad or ticket him in any way for sitting in his car without a driver's license. Uh, then ICE began to threaten the boy and threaten the dad. Uh, they, they even at one point said, if you get out, boy, we're not going we're to we're arrest your dad. And the, son, the boy was talking to an officer through a hat, the window was partially open. And while the boy was looking on the other side of the car, an ICE officer reached into the car, unlocked the door, and opened the door and pulled him out. Now, that is also wildly illegal. It is a violation of his Fourth Amendment rights. Uh, But it does show you that ICE will be vindictive against people who don't comply with their orders. So we begin with what Donald Trump said. We go to informing the community about their legal rights are. And at the end of the day... We will move to suppress this young man's detention by ICE because of violation of the Fourth Amendment by the officers who detained him. Uh, Now, I don't know how this will turn out. Ultimately, we we may go all the way to the 11th Circuit. But the reality is this. If people do not exercise their rights, even as undocumented immigrants, what do those rights mean to the rest of us? The Constitution applies to every person in the United States. Persons, not citizens, not permanent residents persons. And near as I could tell, undocumented immigrants are human beings, despite the president's effort to dehumanize them through, through terms that do so. Uh, but the reality is we have, a, we have a fight on our hand over the next uh, few weeks. We will see how this plays out. And my guess is that the uh, immigrant communities will remain resilient, that this will not play well uh, in the media, uh, and that uh, ultimately ICE will uh, end up canceling uh, their program, and just go back to what they normally do on an everyday basis. We're going to take our first break here on the Immigration Hour. We'll be right back with you with no commercials, but a new topic. Welcome back to the Immigration era. I want to hit our next topic right now, which is actually very timely. I want to talk about the Fairness for High-Skilled Immigrants Act of 2019. This is a bill that was proposed by Senators Mike Lee, Republican from Utah, and Kamala Harris, a Democrat from California and running for president, um, they introduced the Fairness for Sky-Skilled Immigrants Act on Wednesday in the Senate. Uh, In the House, a similar version of their bill has like 300 uh, co-sponsors. That's HB 1044. This was introduced in February uh, of 2017, so about four months ago and change. Uh, And this bill... um, has uh, a lot of co-sponsors. We've got uh, Republicans, Roy Blunt, Susan Collins, uh, Jim Moran, uh, Democrats, Tom Carper, Ron Wyden, Maria Cantwell, Cory Gardner, Tom Gotton, Tammy Baldwin, Jeff Merkley, Michael Bennett, Kevin Kramer, and Kirsten Sinema, um, along with others. And the bill itself uh, really has uh, an interesting history, but the design of the bill is to... Basically, no longer mistreat uh, at least employment-based immigrants. We're going to continue to mistreat family-based immigrants through a quota system. Now, this goes back to the Act of uh, the Immigration Act in 1965, uh, where we changed our quota system on who we let into the United States. And a part of that quota system, uh, we uh, we did in Section uh, 202 of the Immigration Nationality Act, which you'll find at 8 USC. 1152A2. Uh, we had a per-country quota limit that basically said that no country gets more than 6.7, 7% of available visas in any preference category. Um, now, what that translates into, if you if you look at the, the employment-based categories, EB3 and EB2. Uh, under EB3, there are 40,000 residents a year available in that category. And in EB-2, there are another 40,000 green cards or immigrant visas available in that category divided by three because we're even though this is legally wrong and hopefully a lawsuit will come down one day on this, but um, they're not 40,000 skilled workers. There are 40,000 skilled workers and their families. So EB-2 is master's degree or higher. EB-3 generally is a bachelor's degree or a skilled worker with two years of experience. Uh, so really it's about 14,000 or so, 13,500 individual workers each year, plus their family. Average family size is about three. Um, and on top of that, uh, we have these per country limits. So if you take, let's say, 7% of 13,000, really you're only looking at, you know, 900, 800 a year on average. Now, here, that, that's what the law says. Now let's look at the other side of what is it in practice? Well, in practice, in recent years, really up really starting about four, three or four years ago, there are no waiting lines for any country. That is, no country is using their 7% except for two. Well, let's cut kind of three. Philippines is using theirs, but set Philippines aside uh, because they just became current in July for everybody. Uh, India and China. Now, the China backlog goes back about, it'll probably be five to seven years for a Chinese national under the current law to get a green card. But Indian nationals have a far worse fate. Their fate is even worse than brothers and sisters of Mexican citizens in the family-based category. Uh, And there are estimates that say that the waiting line for EB-2 and EB-3 is somewhere between 80 and 150 years Eight years of waiting time. Now, by any measure, that's not fair. Um, and you have to wonder, well, why is India so much different than everybody else? And it's the fact is, India is not different from everybody else. India is treated exactly the same as everybody else. They have just been the primary source of recruiting uh, because of their educational system, their focus on technology, and their English language capabilities for a lot of the tech sector – um, that's been thriving and growing in the United States over the last 30 years, really last 25. Uh, and a lot of folks have come from India, and they've got this long waiting period. Here is a couple of the downsides of that. One, they are trapped by their employers. Now, of course, they can change employers. New employer does another labor certification, but they're trapped with their employers. They're trapped working in their field. That's for the rest of their life. The rest of their lives. These are, these are lifetime jobs. Two, If they have a child born outside the United States, that child will grow up in America, but will age out at the age of 21. And if mom and dad don't have their green card by then, their residence, the kid loses their status and has to find his own way in the United States, even though he has been raised and went to school and likely much of college in the United States. That child ages out and will have to start their own path through a work visa like an H-1B, or marriage to a U.S. citizen. Um, so that's, that's a nightmarish scenario. These are, the, these are the dreamers that aren't undocumented. These are the dreamers that grew up here legally but have no path to residence because they're going to age out because of these per-country limits. You also have the, the uncertainty of the current administration's treatment of H-1Bs. The vast majority of these uh, EB-2 and EB-3 Indian nationals are on H-1Bs. Uh, and so they have, really, to suffer every year, two or three years, as their visas are renewed or as they change employers, CIS may at any time say, you know what, we don't think your degree is a professional degree, and we don't think that um, uh, your job is really a, 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 a job that requires especially occupation. So we're going to deny it, even though you've been on an H-1B for 20 years. Go home. Have a nice life. Uh, so they, th- these pressures are enormous, on the Indian uh, uh, community, Indian immigrant community. And so they have been striving for years, um, got to be close to a decade at this point, uh, to fix this per-country limit. And in the last Congress, uh, this is the Congress that ended in uh, early January of 2019, uh, in the House passed the bill on the, fa- on the Fairness Bill, a different version of it. Uh, and at one point, it had 350 co-sponsors. I mean, why is that not voted on yesterday? Uh, current The current version of this act in the House, uh, HB, H.R. 1044, uh, has somewhere north of 300 co-sponsors. Put it on the floor, Nancy. Come on. What are you waiting for? Um, but it's never really the House that's the problem right now. It's the Senate. And the good news is you have a bipartisan uh, group of senators. Uh, that uh, have introduced this bill. But there is, on the flip side, what is the downside to the High Skilled um, uh, uh, Workers Act, this, this Fairness for High Skilled Workers Act? Well, in previous iterations of the bill, basically it, made the, it took away the country limits and allowed, it made people who had no waiting time, which is everybody else in the world other than Indians and Chinese, and it turned their waiting time into seven years turns it into seven years. Um, bam, just instantly like that. Um, and obviously there was a lot of backlash events that why should all of a sudden, just because a lot of people from one country come, why should they then get preferential treatment over those who are from countries that don't have high immigration, but shouldn't have to wait seven years because they're not using their numbers. So there's two sides to this argument, uh, despite what some people say. Um, and, uh, that's why the new bill proffered by uh, Senators Lee and Harris actually kind of addressed that in a much different way. And here's what, uh, what this bill says that is, produced, uh, is introduced in the Senate. Um, and it says uh, that the Fairness for High Skilled Immigrants Act of 2019 does this the total, this is in section uh, uh, 2A2. The total number of immigrant visas made available to natives of any single foreign state or dependent area under the law, in any fiscal year, may not exceed 15% in the case of a single foreign state, or 2% in the case of a dependent area of the total numbers of visas for that. Visa. So it took the 7% and doubled it. It doubled that number, um, and that that is a lot more visas and cuts the line instantly in half. And here's the deal. When countries aren't using their numbers, those numbers are, in fact, allocated to India and China. So it's not that they're only going to get 15%. They're going to get a minimum of 15%, which probably means there's still no real... They're probably getting 15% anyway. Uh, It's just that it's more random if they get it or not. Um, Now they may get at at least 15% plus more, and we know that the numbers... Of, undocu- of of immigrants are still slowing, and this this is a part of another show one time. But we know that the number people coming to the United States is actually dropping, even though you can come to the U.S. right now in 18 months on a green card from anywhere in the world if you have a job offer, if you're not from India or China. Now, other parts of this bill uh, are. Um, have an interesting uh, tap, a different factor for countries that are already at the ceiling. It says this, if the total number of immigrant visas made available to natives of any single foreign state, India, will exceed the numerical limitation in any fiscal year, the immigration visas shall be allotted to such natives of, of India, let's just say India, in a manner so that, except as provided above, the proportions made available under each of the paragraphs is equal to the ratio of the total visas made available under the respective paragraphs. Now, that, you're going to say, what the heck does that mean? But uh, Basically, it means that India is going to get more visas if other people are not using it. Um, now, for China, uh, is uh, China has always had a, an offset because of the Chinese Student Protection Act of 1992. Basically, we've been reducing the number <clears throat> of Chinese immigrant visas by the kids that came... 30 years ago, and we're stuck in the United States because of Tiananmen Square. They literally strike that, which instantly makes Chinese visas uh, available. And we should clear the Chinese backlog in a year or two uh, because the numbers from China, because of Trump's, because of the tariff, because of what the Chinese government is doing, we're seeing fewer uh, fewer folks coming in. You're going to see China become current uh, in the not-too-distant future. now, in the uh, the uh, the transition rules for employment-based immigrants as part of this bill, um, so for fiscal year 2020, 15% is made available under the paragraph. They're allotted uh, to India with the largest aggregate numbers of natives obtaining visas. Uh, fiscal year 2021, 10% are made available. So they're for the, for the next uh, three years, uh, India is trying to get more visas than they normally would get, uh, so they could so they can begin to clear the backlog. And uh, what I have seen uh, is that um, uh, as part of these per-country levels and looking at the numbers, that if this bill was enacted, India should be able to clear their backlog in about seven years, about seven years, uh, without making a huge dent, although there will be some dent on the numbers for countries, uh, people from other countries. Um, And so this um, uh, (coughs) this will be actually... Uh, a good thing if it passes, but it will have you know it'll be in some uncertainty if it moves forward. Now this bill wasn't going anywhere, of course, as a as a standalone bill. Uh, it, it just simply wasn't wasn't going to get wasn't wasn't going to get anywhere. It just wasn't gonna wasn't going to get anywhere, uh, and so the bill had to be uh, it had to bring other elements in to this. So yesterday. Uh, Senators um, Harris and uh, Lee, uh, maybe it was just Lee, but I think Harris has signed on, uh, have introduced an amendment of this bill uh, that basically actually adds a whole bunch of um, requirements to H-1B employers. So, you know, this is, again, Congress, instead of just fixing the bill, boom, we're going to fix this, they want some people who don't like H-1Bs want a trade-off. Now, they will, they, they, they will lose some co-sponsors over this. Not many. They will lose it, but they might gain more than they're losing. Uh, so basically, here's what it does. Uh, Senator Lee's amendment um, basically clarifies the employer's obligation to indicate on the LCA how it calculated the prevailing wage rate. Now, if you're using prevailing wages from the OES wage survey, you're fine. That's not a big deal. It, it requires more effort, okay, but it's not a big deal. Uh, second, it requires employers to certify that they are not favoring H 1B non immigrants over Americans. That's a box. And honestly, I don't know a single US employer who'd rather pay thousands of dollars to the immigration service and subject themselves to audits and fraud site inspections than just go ahead and, and hire an American worker if there's one available. Three, allows the Department of Labor to request W-2 forms from employers for their H-1B workers to verify they're getting paid the wage. Again, they can actually do that as part of an audit, so I'm, that's not a big deal. Four, it requires the Department of Labor to charge a filing fee for LCAs. There we go. Show me the money. Uh, so that that's a fee um, that uh, it's not going to be cheap, which makes the H-1Bs... More expensive, which means employers less likely to use them. That's what these guys want. Five, it provides that foreign workers cannot be brought into the U.S. on a B one in lieu of H one B. Now we have we have used this visa, this particular visitor visa, sparingly over the years. Um, that simply allows people to come in. They remain on their foreign payroll. They're going to come in for a month. They're going to do a quick job and they're going to leave. No longer can do that. That's been the law for, for really quite some time. It's been the law for quite some time, uh, and uh, they're going to do, if it, as far as I've been, you know, 50 years, they want to end that practice. It's a creation. It's not really a law. It's the creation of the Department of the FAM, the Foreign Affairs Department, Department of State. Uh, the next thing it does is it protects whistleblowers who call attention to H-1B fraud. Okay. I think they've already been protected. Uh, allows for information sharing between the USCIS and DOL to detect fraud. And my question is, why the hell aren't they doing that already? Um, that seems surprising. And on, on the labor condition application, it allows DOL to review LCAs for clear indications of fraud. Aren't, aren't they doing that? Is it, should they be doing that now? That's kind of crazy. Uh, clarifies employers' existing obligations to either pay HMB workers the actual wages of American workers with substantially the same job duties or pay the prevailing wage calculated with reference to the geographic area of employment. That's already the law. Permits annual compliance audits of H-1B employers and mandates audits for H-1B dependent employers to the committee a willful violation in the prior year. Okay, I mean, honestly, as, a, as an immigration lawyer for 30 years, we do audits of our H-1B employers ourselves. So this won't, to, to the good employers, this won't have any impact. It increases the penalties for LCA violations that enough not changed in 1990. I don't have a problem with that. And it expands the Department of Labor's investigatory powers by uh, allowing investigation to be based on any anonymous complaints. Right now, it can not It can only be people that are affected by the H-1B. Eliminating arbitrary deadlines and investigations, which they are do have a one-year deadline, and permitting investigations for general compliance with LCA requirements as opposed to simply a willful violation. That last one's a big deal, by the way, um, but it won't stop people from using the H-1B. Uh, so we're, we're going to see, I think, um, a, um, a, 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 this, this, I think, will bring this to the floor of the Senate. Uh, if uh, if the Grim Reaper decides to bring it forward uh, as a standalone bill, it is a good standalone bill. I do not think that the amnesty-only crowd, the people that say, oh, unless we have a legalization, we move over emigrate, I don't think they're going to stand in the way of this. I think this is a good thing. And um, certainly it will be really good uh, for our clients and friends uh, from India and China as we as we put fairness into our overall immigration system. We're gonna take a quick break here on the uh, on the immigration. I'll we'll be right back with our final segment today. Thanks everybody for listening in. It's uh, great for me to be back. I, have been gone long. Uh, I haven't been gone long. Hopefully you haven't been gone long either. Uh, and one day we'll record commercials and other fun stuff to put in here. But for now, I think it's just talking about immigration is really really important. Um, the Pew Research folks have come out with a new fact sheet. Um, and I love immigration facts. Uh, you will hear uh, the anti-immigration movement try to manipulate facts around. But you know, at the end of the day, you just need to look at the facts, not statistics, uh, which can be skewed and which you know, folks in the anti-movement have used for years uh, uh, to, to, to try, try to argue that immigrants are bad for America. Um, but I think the Pew facts are vital to us understanding really what's going to go on. Um, what First factoid, uh, the United States has more immigrants than any country in the world. Clearly, that makes us great, right? Uh, isn't, isn't being great part of, part of that? Uh, I think this is a wonderful thing. That we have more immigrants. Today, there are more than 40 million people living in the United States that were born in another country, accounting for about one-fifth of the world's migrants in 2017. The population is also extraordinarily diverse, with about just about every country in the world represented in U.S. Uh, in the U.S. population. So how many people in the U.S. are immigrants? The U.S. foreign-born population reached a record 44.4 million in 2017. Since 1965, when the U.S. immigration laws replaced the national quota system, the number of immigrants living in the U.S. has more than quadrupled, And this has accounted for about 85% of our population growth during that time frame. Immigrants today account for 13.6% of the U.S. population, Um, which is nearly triple what it was in 1970. However, the immigrant share of population still remains below the highest levels of immigration share of the population dating back to 1890 when uh, immigrants made up uh, almost 15% of the U.S. population. And really, it is only through immigration that we have grown as a country. Um, If you take out all the immigrants that have come to the U.S. since 1965, we are a substantially smaller country. We are smaller than Europe. Uh, we don't have most of our tech sector. We don't have most of our innovation. Uh, we don't have most of our economic growth. Um, we are a lot like Italy um, or you know, Eastern Europe. We look a lot like Russia, uh, which doesn't have economic growth at all. Uh, and that's not good. America is much stronger today because of the immigrants that have come. So here's, a, here's the next question. What is the legal status of immigrants in the United States? Get this. So as we said before, there are about 44.4 million people in the United States that are immigrants, foreign-born. Less than a quarter of them are undocumented. So now keep in mind, that 44.4 million, it's 13.8% of the population. Undocumented immigrants, unauthorized immigrants, are a quarter of the immigrant of the foreign-born population at about 10.5 million. So that means that about 3%, 3%, 3% of the US population is undocumented, 3%. The vast majority of them have been in the United States for beyond 15 years, and many more than 20. The vast majority of them have US citizen children, permanent resident and US citizen parents. Uh, They have had jobs for a long term in the United States. They are as much part of this country as the native-born are, for the most part. Now, the, the number of folks that you have seen coming in at the border are, are not really necessarily included in that 10.5 million, uh, but and, and they've been averaging between 40 and 120,000 a month. The numbers have now gone down again because of seasonal migration. But you notice those numbers were shrinking up until Trump became president. And Trump, as he began to beat the drum for the border, <laughs> He was the major selling point on people coming from Central and South Central America. Hey, you better get in before Trump closes the door. Come on in. And the, the really the, the 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 smugglers have been using that as a marketing point to get people in the United States. Uh, so most migrants in the United immigrants in the US, 77%, almost 80% are in the country legally, uh, as according to the most recent numbers. In 27 in 2017, 45% of the native-born, of the foreign-born population were already naturalized US citizens, 45%. There are currently 12.3 million permanent residents of the United States. And my guess is at least 80% of them, 10 million minimum, are eligible for citizenship today. 10 million are eligible for citizenship today and are not filing for it for a variety of reasons. One, they might not have any money. Two, they might not speak the language. and don't have to feel that they can pass the test. But every one of those is a potential voter in the next election. And I can tell you, there's lots of groups going out there trying to find those 10 million people and convince them and help them to apply for naturalization for this next election. Um, so of this 10.5 million or 3.2% of the population, you have to wonder, uh, our politicians spend a lot of time haranguing and whining, and complaining, and demonizing 3% of the population, 3%. Does 3% of the population really affect the entire country? When you put your your brain on, then you should do that occasionally, and you look at the numbers, the facts, I think you have to come to the necessary conclusion that people are demonizing undocumented immigrants unnecessarily. And that 3% of the population, we can deal with. We can figure out a way, path forward. And you know what? If we put a legalization program in place, and let's say the DREAM Act passes the Senate and the TPS Act that's 2 million people. So now we're down to 8 million, which is somewhere around 2.5% of the population. If we said, hey, anybody that's been here longer than 10 years, we're going to give you a path forward to legality, not citizenship, to legality. That leaves about maybe 2 million people that are undocumented. So now we're down below 1% of the U.S. population. And that, if you really wanted to round people up, that you could probably do. But that probably makes too much sense to people that have brains. And therefore, Congress won't ever do it. Not that I'm saying that Congress doesn't have brains. Um, But they don't. You know, not all, we talked this briefly, not all permanent residents want to be citizens. Uh, uh, Some don't want to do it. Uh, Some figured they're just here for the short haul and they'll go back to their home countries at some point in time. Although the number of uh, naturalization applications has climbed in recent years. um, Right now, the Trump administration is scurrying like uh, rats off a sinking ship to interview and naturalize as many people as possible because they have been so slow in naturalizing people this year that if they don't get it done by September 30th, they are looking at the lowest levels of getting people naturalized in decades, in decades. So they're scurrying. Uh, heck, they're even scheduling our clients here in Atlanta to go to Greer, North Carolina, four hours away, and Montgomery, Alabama, three hours away, uh, to get people uh, sworn in uh, to, 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 to do their interviews. Uh, so here's an interesting factoid from the Pew so, such as that Mexican lawful immigrants have the lowest naturalization rate overall. That's actually kind of shocking but not stunning but mostly, it's about finance and language. And as we meet with people that, are na- that got their amnesty back in 1990, that got their green card, that 30 years later aren't naturalized, that are now well into their 50s, and we tell them, under our laws, you don't have to speak English because you've been here so long. You can do the test in Spanish. Um, and they're like, what? I didn't know that. Um, and so we're going to see a lot more people naturalizing, I think, over the, over the next year. Um, now, here's what's interesting: People arriving in the U.S. today, this factoids, um, uh, lots Latinos, Hispanics are declining, uh, and uh, in fact, uh, that the percentage of immigrants of Latinos is less than twenty six percent, and then it's Asians, uh, both uh, people from the Far East and East Asia, um, that uh, the Far West Asia that are coming. It's all of Asia, and they are thirty seven percent of immigrants coming to America. Uh, the rest made up of, uh, of Africans and Europeans. Uh, so it's really interesting to see the numbers and the percentages of the foreign-born population. Now, if you project out at our current, if our numbers stay the same, and that's no guarantee, uh, because if, if you resolve the India and China backlog such that they no longer have a backlog, and India and China become more like the rest of the world in immigration, uh, our immigrant population is not going to grow at the numbers that they currently have. Now, if you project what we've grown going forward, uh, there will be 78 million foreign-born people in the United States by 2065. I'll be, I'll be dust by then. Um, but that's just projecting the way we've grown over the last uh, 50 years. Uh, those numbers are no, by no means certain. And we know that Mexico, for example, has net out-migration. No other country in the world other than India and China are using their numbers. Uh, Philippines a little bit, but nobody else is using their numbers. Uh, And those countries will ultimately stabilize, and they won't use their numbers either. And so America will stop being uh, a nation of so many immigrants um, and we'll return to the times of uh, when we had mo- lower number of immigrants going forward. I mean, you can write that prophecy down, but that, that appears to be uh, where the trends are going. Now, the, the real shocking part, of course, of this Pew study is um, how many immigrants have come to the U.S. as refugees. Uh, and as we, we look at these numbers since 1980, since we started allowing refugees, there have been about 3 million that have settled. Uh, and we averaged over over the last Obama and a Bush year somewhere between fifty to seventy five thousand refugees, but in twenty eighteen there was only twenty two thousand five hundred refugees, and they're slated to be far more far less this year than before because the president doesn't like refugees, he doesn't like helping people that are in the worst times of their lives and resettling them here. Um, by the way, the largest country of uh, of resettlement over the last decade has been Burma or Myanmar. Um, And uh, just this last year, it was the DRC, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, that sent the most people, followed by Burma, the Ukraine, Bhutan, and Eritrea. So, you know, the Ukraine. We have refugees. We are settling from the Ukraine. Thank you, Donald. Um, So I, I would encourage you to take a look at this Pew study. It's got great facts in it, especially for those of you who listen to this that teach, uh, teach immigration law at law schools or at universities. Um, we're going to sign off. It's been a great week. Uh, this week is the annual conference of the American Immigration Lawyers Association. We should be able to bring back some crazy facts, some crazy information uh, to share with you next week because something always breaks at USCIS or ICE when, uh, when ALA meets uh, and all the lawyers are out of town. Uh, I guess the cats are gone and the mice will come out to play. Till next week, this is your host, Charles Cook, on the Immigration Hour on America's web radio.